Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, our topic is triple predestination. You heard that right, triple predestination. Normally one hears of double predestination, occasionally single predestination, but we are going for the triple predestination option. And what exactly we mean by that mysterious phrase will become clear as we go along. Now, the reason I chose this topic for already the fifth episode of our fledgling podcast is because I think predestination, sometimes also known as the doctrine of election, is one of those things that gives theology a bad name. Like people think theology is all about deciding who goes to hell. Um, Not even necessarily who goes to heaven, mainly who goes to hell. So I thought it was time to just right away tackle that uh, most appalling or darkest of doctrines and put it in a new light, which is what a good gospel theology should always do. So, Dad, you there? I'm here. Okay, good. (laughs) So, Dad, I want to begin this by recalling a story. I don't know if you will remember this or not. It was in 1999 or 2000, and you were teaching a May term in Wittenberg in Germany, and you brought me along as your teaching assistant. Um, I think nepotism is greatly underrated. I personally (laughs) enjoy it quite a lot. I remember um, your birthday celebration on that trip, Sarah. uh, I remember the headache the morning after more than anything else. Um, anyway, <laughs> so uh, so we were on a train tour from Wittenberg. And of course, you know, first time in Wittenberg, very exciting for a young Lutheran. But um, perhaps ironically, it will, will seem, um, I had just reread The Bondage of the Will by Martin Luther. In fact, I had read it in college and did not like it, though I wrote on part of it um, in my senior thesis. And incidentally, if there's anyone out there near Lenore Ryan College and they would uh, go into the library, find my thesis and burn it, I would be extremely grateful. (laughs) But I I reread The Bondage of the Will in seminary and was transfixed by it. In fact, the closest thing I've ever had to a conversion experience came as a result of reading The Bondage of the Will for a second time. Though, in all fairness, it was a very slow-moving, like, 10-week conversion experience. So that's a topic for another time. Anyway, so I had my head full of predestination, and I was at a Reformed seminary. um, So uh, (laughs) there's, you know, sort of predestination in the air, though not like anyone there was really into Calvin. It was much more a a Bart-centered place. And we'll get back to Bart later. Anyway, Dad, the story I'm trying to get to is that you and I were on a train tour from Wittenberg, And I started talking about predestination. There were some students who were listening in. And as I recall it, I got so close to cornering you into conceding double predestination. And I was just like hammering home the point like, look, if Luther's right, and it's really true that it's all God's choice, then you can't just say that he... he, elects to save us, you also have to say he elects to damn us, damn those of us who are damned. Right, right, right. And uh, and you wouldn't go there. <laughs> and at the time, I thought it was a little unfair and, and didn't really uh, um, give due weight to the implications of what Luther was saying. Well, now, you know, I'm, I'm grown, I'm middle-aged, I've matured, and I realized why one does not go to double predestination. In fact, one jumps all the way to triple predestination. Um <laughs> you're teasing our poor audience they're wondering how do we get from here to there already yeah all right all right so let me let me get down to the doctrinal details here so okay so first of all in case you don't know predestination or the doctrine of the election is the idea that we do not save ourselves we do not choose god but god chooses us and god chooses us most importantly for eternal salvation 
And double predestination is the implication that God not only chooses who to save, but also actively chooses who to damn, who not to save. This is why it is such a dark and disturbing doctrine. And it's pretty easy to see what the objections are. Like, one is that it makes all of human life into a puppet show. There's no freedom. Nothing we do has any moral consequence, because if it's already been decided by God, which presumably means decided before the beginning of the world, you know, there's there's no meaning to this charade. And uh, so, in fact, why bother to even try? If you're going to be saved, no matter how awful you are, you can get away with it. If you're going to be damned, well, you might as well enjoy yourself while you're at it before you go to hell for all eternity. It also is objected on a more scriptural ground that there are all these commands in scripture, all these exhortations to to uh, choose God, to behave yourself, to obey the commandments, to engage and sacrifice and do the right thing. And again, if this um, doctrine of election or predestination has already decided your fate, then these seem to be kind of jokes or teases, like why would you even be told what to do? But I think the fundamental concern here is that it just seems to make God into a tyrant, a whimsical tyrant, unjust and arbitrary. On what grounds, if it isn't our choosing or undoing, can God possibly bisect the human race into those who are saved and those who are damned? It can only mean a kind of randomness. There can't be any ultimate meaning to it. And who wants to believe and trust in a God like that? So these are the normal reasons why people hate this doctrine. And uh, so I think we've set up for ourselves a nice little problem to tackle. What do you say, Dan? Yeah, thanks a lot for handing it off to me at just that point. <laughs> yeah, you notice this is already a trend developing, I think, in our podcasts here as <laughs> I, I raise the objections and I let you solve them. <laughs> well, I don't know. I'm gonna we're gonna turn tables on that sooner or later here. <laughs> okay. But in, in fact, I you know, I've spent a great deal of my theological life pondering these issues. And I happen to agree with you, there's no text in the history of theology more disturbing and or more liberating than Luther's treatise on the captivity of choice. It would be better translated on captive choice. De servo arbitrio is the Latin title, and it's servo came, comes into English as ser, servile, uh, slave, captivated, and arbitrium is the word for choice, like how do you decide between options? And Luther is, with the very title, is arguing that in Adam, we have all lost our free choice. And all of our choices that remain with respect to the relationship to God, our creator, are bad choices. So for Luther, this critique of free choice human free choice, does not deny the psychological or even stronger ontological uh, reality that human beings make choices with consequences. It's rather making a more fundamental point that since Adam, the human race has lost its original choice to obey God. That paradisical option to trust in the divine commandment wholeheartedly uh, and to obey it, is taken away from us. We no longer have that paradisical option. Instead, being exiled from paradise in Adam, all of our choices, at least in relationship to God, are bad choices. 
Now, why was such a teaching so important for Luther? Yeah, it would seem to be kind of depressing, actually, like all of these commands and exhortations of scriptures are just utterly useless teases, because, well, if all your choices are bad, like, what's the point of trying? What's religion? What's spirituality? That's exactly the target in Luther's crosshairs at this point. The revolutionary, reformatory power of Luther's teaching is that all our so-called good choices, all of our choices to be spiritual, to be religious, to be ethical, all of those choices by which we uh, distinguish ourselves from the bad people, the criminals, the misfits, the 'er ne'er-do-wells, all of that activity we put into saying, I thank thee, God, that I am not like this tax collector. All of that religious effort to elevate ourselves over and above the bad person, the sinner, the 'er ne'er-do-well, all of that is equally sinful and guilty before God. My goodness, this sounds a lot like Jesus' teaching. Oh dear, we're getting close to Jesus now. (laughs) (laughs) That's dangerous ground. Let's hold off on that for a moment and just stick with Luther's teaching here. Because what Luther wanted to do was explode the equation of Christian piety and life with middle-class moralism and its smug sense of superiority. Which in Luther's time was not so much uh, the middle class as it was Erasmus of Rotterdam. That's right. It was the idea that you could cultivate your spirituality and your ethics in such a way that you could clearly elevate yourself over and above the deplorables. Now, that's the kind of opening gambit of Luther's attack on free choice. Yes, you have free choices, but all the choices that are actually out there for you prove to be uh, guilty before God. And so you say, well, then what about all the commandments? uh, Love good, hate evil, do righteousness, do justice, uh, all the commandments, all the ethical commandments of God. Don't they presuppose that we have the power to obey them? What would be the point of issuing those commands if we could not obey them? To which Luther says, you don't understand Paul's teaching that the law is there to be a taskmaster until Christ should come. You don't understand the purpose of the law in God's economy of salvation. The purpose of the law is not to get us by our own power to become the righteous people whom God loves. On the contrary, the purpose of the commandment is to expose our impotence, to show us that even in our best choices and in our good behavior, we are still seeking self above all things. We're not seeking God above all, and we're not loving our neighbors as ourselves. But in our very obedience to the law, we are seeking to avoid penalties like hell and seeking to gain rewards like heaven. And so the inner secret of our obedience to the law, even though it appears to be so good and righteous, is in fact self-serving. I don't want to go to hell. I want to make my way to heaven. And God, don't you owe me because I've made these choices? And Luther says, look at that. That is the essence of rebellion against God that self-assertion by way of religion, spirituality, and ethics. 
Boy, that just skewers all of us, doesn't it? And it, it touches on, just uh, as a side note here, we'll, we'll do an episode on the distinction between law and gospel. But as you pointed out, that's a really crucial piece here of what Luther is saying, is that the law is indeed God's word, even God's good word. The problem is the law does not convey with itself the power to obey it. And that's the ultimate problem with it. It's not that it's wrong or bad or even an evil taskmaster. It's that just by telling someone, obey God, thou shalt not, or whatever, it doesn't give people in those words the power to do it. And so as Luther points out, you can keep the law to some degree because it suits your own motivations, like going to heaven or even in a purely, you know, enlightened hedonistic sense, like, well, you know, objectively speaking, keeping the commandments will lead to a generally happier life. But that is not the same as um, loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Exactly. And, you know, I think what this leads to, and this might be a next step in our conversation, is that we, we really have to unpack what we mean by human freedom. I think that the whole discussion of free will is uh, a textbook case of what log- logicians call the fallacy of equivocation where we use a single term like human will or choice or something, or free will, but we, with this single term, actually are talking about three or four sharply distinguishable things. All right, well, why don't you, uh, why don't you unpack those for us then? Okay, well, chiefly in the treatise Bondage of the Will, Luther is using the Latin term voluntas, which could be put into English as willingness, willingness, that I do something willingly. So if the the bank robber on the street hijacks me and puts the revolver to the back of my head and says, into the bank and demand the money, well, I'm coerced, I'm forced against my will. I don't want to do this, but I'm being forced with the barrel of the revolver into my back to go commit the crime. I'm not willingly doing it, yet, in fact, I'm the instrument of this action. So, Luther, for Luther, this is the primary meaning of human willingness, of human freedom, that one must do whatever one does with respect to God willingly in filial love of the Heavenly Father, out of joyful and free willingness or obedience. Otherwise, it's all phony. It's all coerced. So you could even like coin an awkward English word and say it's it's wantingness. Like, I really want to do this. Like when I see a chocolate chip cookie, I really want to eat it. No one has to talk me into it. It's the desire is there and unarguable. I think this is a kind of a truism. Aristotle began the Nicomachean ethics Of course, Aristotle is not a Christian thinker, but this is a kind of a truism of human nature. All people by nature seek their good. Now, that doesn't mean they seek God in the way that Luther would require. It simply means that spontaneously, without any coercion, what appeals to my eye, I seek. What seems to be good to me, I want. And if I were a person who wanted what was appearing ugly, dangerous, disgusting, repugnant, you would say that person needs psychotherapy. That person need, needs a clinical, clinical help. That's really sick. 
So Luther is just basically, when he talks about human freedom, the freedom of the human creature, he means willingness. And so the key issue for him is how do I become a free and joyful willer of the will of God? How do I get from being a slave who does in religion uh, out of self-interest, either fear of punishment or hope of reward, how do I transit from that servile will to a filial, uh, uh, the, the will of a beloved child towards a beloved parent? How do I find that willingness to will the will of God? But the way you're talking here suggests that it's not as easy as it sounds. It's not a matter of kind of rationally looking at the facts of, look, God is good and kind and wonderful and promises you eternal salvation. Therefore, you should desire him. And then you do it. That doesn't seem to be what actually happens. Well, that's because God is this uh, very peculiar object of desire that we hear of through the word of revelation, or is the great unknown that we wonder about, uh, or is the hope of the glorious vision uh, of God and with all of his redeemed people in the light eternal. Uh, But for us right now, we don't see God in God's glory. We have only the word concerning God, which is available to us in the depiction of Jesus Christ that comes to us through the gospel. And here you have a really peculiar problem, don't you? By the light of nature, finally, with Jesus Christ, what you see is a man dying in agony on a cross, crying out his abandonment by God, dead and buried in the tomb. Who would ever want that? Yeah, good point. Right? So there's a really, how does one come to perceive that man dying on the cross as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Or as a desirable object, like in Isaiah, there was nothing about him that we should find him desirable or beautiful. In Isaiah 53, what you're quoting, of course, was the early church's theology of the atonement, right? Exactly. How does that become desirable to us? And Luther's answer to that question is that it cannot become desirable to us under the light of nature. Under the light of nature, where all people seek what seems to be good to them, Christ crucified is nothing but a stone of stumbling, a matter of offense. No one can desire this. So what has to happen to make this visible word of God attractive or desirable to us? Answer for Luther, the spirit of the resurrection the Holy Spirit, who raised Jesus from the dead and then revealed that risen Jesus to the first Christians and then operates through the message of the resurrection of the crucified. Paul says in Galatians to portray Christ as crucified before your very eyes through such vivid preaching of the gospel that Christ crucified becomes desirable by the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit who proclaims him through the gospel. That means, in a way, that the cross and resurrection of Christ happens to the auditor, to the person listening to the gospel. Uh, In that event, their 
cognitive and affective faculties are transformed. There is a regeneration or resurrection to faith in which what I previously took offense at, like Paul did, Jesus died as a blasphemer deservedly, now becomes visible to me as the hidden Son of God who gave his life as a ransom for many, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Then Christ becomes desirable. Okay, and so when that happens, that is the transformation of the voluntas. But maybe now you should talk about how that voluntas relates to the other kinds of so-called free will that you said get all jumbled up together. Right. Free will is talked about in at least two other ways. One we could call freedom of action, and the other we could call freedom of choice. Freedom of action simply means I have the power to do what I will. I want to be a Christian. Do I have the power to be a Christian? Is it simply a willingness? But where do I get the power actually to do this, to to will this and live according to that will? Uh, Again, Luther's action uh, response here is the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who creates faith and the Holy Spirit who strengthens faith. So there can be a kind of double will going on here, which also sounds pretty biblical now that I say it out loud, where I can want to be a Christian and yet not able to be a Christian. Like I can find it desirable in one way and find it impossible in another. So that suggests a deeply divided self that can want something that it can't want, or it can choose something that it can't choose, or it can't choose something that it should be able to choose. So the Christian is a divided self. So the Christian is an embattled piece of the cosmos. That's the teaching of the seventh chapter of Romans which so many interpreters take offense at. The good that I would, I do not, and that which I would not, that I do. In the law of my mind, my spirit, I love the law of God and approve of it. I want to do it, I will to do it, but I discover another law at work in my members. It is the sin that dwells within me. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Answer, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, notice this teaching of Romans 7 is between baptism in Romans 6, the inauguration of the Christian life, and consummation in Romans 8, the vision of the future redemption of our bodies and the whole creation. That locates the Christian between baptism, the inauguration of faith and discipleship, and the consummation, which is still future, still yet to come. And so the Christian is suspended in this scene of intense tension and conflict between the the battle of the spirit and the flesh is taking place daily in the Christian believer. So yes, there is now a spiritual willingness, a voluntas, wanting to do God's will, but discovered in the process is a will that resists Uh, that does not allow the free action upon the willingness. Yeah, you're you're preaching to the choir here, Dad. You know, when I was in seminary, it was just a truism, like, oh, Romans 7 is not about the Christian life. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Have you tried? It just... (laughs) I mean, I, I think your your argument from the structure of Romans is is 
probably more compelling and authentic than just the experiential struggle of trying to be a Christian. But I was just astounded that people could just dismiss it out of hand, like, well, this can't really be about the Christian life. I agree with you, obviously, very much so. I think that the Christian life is the microcosm of the cosmic battle, uh, apocalyptic battle between God and the devil. This conflict is inaugurated in the Christian and it continues until our dying day. It's very interesting how Luther made sense out of this. He said that, look at, uh, even though in my conscience uh, and in my mind, Romans 7, I have been converted by the Spirit and I want to will the will of God, in my bodily existence, I am organically bound to the unredeemed creation. It was interesting, just today I was having a conversation with our faculty in environmental ethics, and she was saying how early on in her career she wanted so much to be a purist who would totally opt out of the sinful systems that are destroying the environment. And as maturity came to her, she realized every time I turn on a light switch, I'm employing electricity that is fueled by dumping tons of toxins into the atmosphere. Even if I wanted to opt out of the system, I can't. I'm organically, bodily connected to all those systems of malice and injustice. And not only am I connected to them externally, they penetrate me. They come into me. I mean, we could talk for hours about, take, for example, something like the pornographic culture we live in and how all the pornographic imagery and metaphors of our culture penetrate into the sexual psyches of people today. It's not like these are just exterior images that you can flip on and flip off. They come into us. The good that I would, I do not, and that which I would not, that I do. And as you pointed out at the at the beginning, when you were talking about the uh, spiritual snottiness that comes with perceiving oneself as good or better than others, that that organic connectedness to others is not just a condemnation of the body and bodily desires, but that the body and and the soul or the body and the spirit are one thing, and that relatedness to other people, to perception of the world around them, infects the spirit even. If the body is kept perfectly in check. And you have to explain then for Paul why in Romans 8 he specifies that the glorious freedom of the children of God will be manifest, and this is Paul's language, in the redemption of our bodies. So reasoning like this, Luther says, as long as we live in this life, this struggle of the Christian life continues because we don't yet have perfect freedom of action. So that would be, you know, another way in which free will is talked about. And here for Luther, the point of the commandment is to show you how unfree you still are. Okay, so I think we've established pretty well by now that human freedom is not what it is popularly talked up to be and how limited our choices are. And I think, I, I really think actually our, our cultural moment in North America is rediscovering all the limits on what we thought was our infinite freedom and all the ways we are bound. Uh, that would undoubtedly be a very interesting um, exploration, but we're here to, to be more strictly about theology than about cultural critique. But I think now let's shift it in the other direction of the objection, which I think 
becomes a more serious one when one does actually become a Christian or desires to be a Christian or is struggling with Christian teaching. I think the human limitation uh, issue can be accepted, but I think the more disturbing one is, especially if you've come to know God through the gospel, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that all should, who believe in him should not perish, but have eternal life. There's that little caveat there, all who believe in him. And then you're saying, well, people believe because of the Holy Spirit. And then that seems to imply, if you think it through to the end, as Luther does, that God God's choice is somehow involved in this, that God is the one who selects, elects people for salvation. And perhaps, presumably, it is implied that he therefore does not choose others. And I think once one is into the gospel realm, that becomes the much bigger problem. How could God possibly not choose someone or anyone or even one person? How can that square up with our understanding of God's saving and loving intention in the gospel? Yeah, that's, of course, and I think you've touched on the problem of theodicy, which is, of course, I think, again, in our culture today, one of the really acute questions. And it distresses me how often Lutheran theologians in particular totally punt on this question, when in fact, Luther's treatise, The Bondage of the Will, concludes with uh, a discussion of theodicy uh, and the conviction that in the light of glory, God's righteousness will be perfectly evident. In the time being, we have to take it on trust. We cannot yet see how God is righteous. But the conviction of faith under the light of grace is that God will indeed prove to be righteous in all his ways. He will prove to be, but he is not evidently proven so right now. That's right. And Luther grants that point. And in, in fact, he even insists upon that point, that by the light of nature, even by the light of grace, it is impossible for us to see in present how God is righteous. At least that's as far as he goes in the treatise on the bondage of the will. Now, there's a very interesting story here that I would like to spend a few minutes on. I've written about this extensively in my book, Paths Not Taken, Fates of Theology from Luther through Leibniz. But it's worth a a rehearsal here. When Luther finished this treatise, it seemed to many people, just like you accused me many years ago, that he had driven his car right to the edge of the cliff, slammed on the brakes, and refused to fly over it into the (laughs) doctrine of double predestination. Luther, why are you slamming on the brakes? Why don't you just come out and say, if God gives grace to some, then God is also withholding grace from others? Isn't that double predestination, Luther? Yet Luther refuses to take that last step. Now, why? I think the answer goes something like this. Luther was concerned in the treatise Bondage of the Will to establish the fact, just like Romans chapter 9, the first chapter of the three great chapters on election or predestination in Romans, Luther was concerned to establish the fact that we are not talking about a human chooser or a creaturely chooser. When we talk about God, we're talking about the creator of all that is not God. We're talking about someone who is qualitatively other than a human chooser. We're talking about the one who is responsible for the whole shebang, 
from the Big Bang to the end, from Genesis to Revelation and everything in between. God is qualitatively different. And so whenever we talk about God's choices, we're not talking about human choices or creaturely choices. I think that's extremely important for Luther to establish. Let God be God is one way Philip Watson summarized all of Luther's theology. We can't put ourselves in the position of God. This is the limit of our reason. We can't reach that high, understand that comprehensively. Shall the clay say to the potter, I have no need of thee? That's Paul's point in Romans 9, and Luther in this treatise wants to make that point. We're talking about God and God's choices, not human beings or creatures and their choices. So that is the first step towards distinguishing between what on the human side would have to be purely arbitrary and what on God's side can have some other meaning, though it may not be in any way evident to us right now. That's right. Right. So and that makes God, the matter of God's choice a matter of serious inquiry, but also finally of a certain awe and mystery. And that's what Luther wants to preserve uh, in this discussion. But of course, the fallout from his book, Bondage of the Will, was scandal for all the reasons you initially discussed. It seemed to many people that Luther had arbitrarily stepped on the brake. He did not draw the logical conclusion that he should have. And that his later follower, John Calvin in Geneva, uh, was the one who actually acted upon the logic of Luther's book. While the followers of Luther in Wittenberg, under the influence of, uh, after Luther's death, under the influence of Philip Melanchthon, came increasingly to stress that the human will or human choice was the third, so-called third factor. In, pre in, in election. So they let in by the back door just a tiny little bit of human choice that I don't resist the grace of God. And that's what distinguishes the saved from the damned. And in the end, if that becomes the third factor, it also ultimately becomes the only factor. Right. It's the decisive one. Why is this one saved and that one damned? Because this one didn't resist and that one did. And then you undo everything Luther's trying to say. Now, there's some debate among scholars whether Melanchthon is really, really goes that far in terms of a kind of semi-Pelagian teaching of human will as a factor. Uh, but be that as it may, certainly some of Melanchthon's followers did. And there's this delicious scene in which George Major, a follower of Philip Melanchthon, is debating with Theodore Beza, a follower of Calvin, late in the 16th century on election and free choice. And Beza concludes the debate by whipping out his copy of Luther's Bondage of the Will and waving it at Major and saying, Luther's on our side, not yours. <laughs> <laughs> and then, so eventually what happened in the course of history is that by the decline of Lutheran orthodoxy, this teaching on human freedom as of the deciding factor in election uh, had kind of come more and more to the fore. And on the reform side, a kind of a radical insistence on the sheer and arbitrary grace of God in election. Uh, so this is obviously a very perilous state for Protestant theology. Luther himself had sensed that this was happening. 
And he, late in his life, Robert Kolb has uh, shown this, demonstrated, I think, this in his book on the uh, captivity of the will, his historical study, that by the time, late in his life, Luther is regretting his use of necessitarian language in the treatise Bondage of the Will and saying that this this word is too metaphysical, too rationalistic. It's not really what I meant when I talked about the necessity of God's will. I was trying to say that God is faithful, that God keeps his promises, that what God promises must necessarily come true. I was trying to say this, and then Luther adds the thought, yes, I have said, that from God's will, all things necessarily come about. But I have also said, there is no other God than Jesus Christ. He is the Lord of Sabbaths, and there is none other. And that's actually stated in the Genesis lectures. Now, if you think about what Luther is saying there, what he's finally saying is that God is faithful to his revealed word, which is Jesus Christ, and that Jesus Christ is the, as it were, necessary or constant determination of God's will forever and ever. So Kolb, at least, finds this middle way between the followers of Melanchthon and the followers of Calvin, which is a a kind of a Christ-centered teaching that God is not mechanically or logically or rationalistically bound uh, by some idea of divine necessity, but God is freely and joyfully bound by what he has done in Jesus Christ. This is God's will to redeem all, all of the creation and that God can be counted on to be faithful in this fashion. So earlier on, we were talking about the problem with our will and our lack of this joyful, free desiring towards God. But what you've just shown us is that actually the direction starts, or it starts on God's side and is directed towards us, that actually it is God, first of all, who freely and joyfully and lovingly reaches out towards us. That is where God's free choice lies. Yes, and of course, here we come, fast forward all the way to the 20th century, and the great achievement of Karl Barth, uh, who stands in the Reformed tradition, but he makes a couple of notable revisions to the Reformed tradition. And the first would be this Christocentric emphasis that he borrows from Luther to say that the atonement of Christ is universally valid. Now, a lot of people get all perplexed about this and saying Barth's teaching universalism, that everyone will automatically be saved. That's a very, very unsophisticated discussion. And it also just reintroduces the whole mechanical or rationalistic approach to God's choice. Like, right. it's automatic. Yeah, everyone gets saved. That's, that's the policy. It's written in the contract. Right, exactly. And that, once again, avoids the whole question of relating to God as an eye to a, as an eye to a thou and a thou to an eye. One of the rationalistic implications of double predestination that later followers of Calvin drew was that Christ died only for the elect. This is called the limited atonement. That makes Christ's atonement instrumental 
to a prior decree of election that selects some for salvation and leaves others to damnation. So it's purely a, a flipping the switch or making the mechanism work, Jesus' death and resurrection. It's not somehow intrinsic or essential to what it is or what it means. That's right. It's not intrinsic to the life of God. And that's where some critics, even of Calvin, have said that Calvin tends to think of the divine decree as God the Father's decision, which he then has Christ his Son efficiently or effectively carry out. So it's not the idea that the eternal decree is the action of the whole trinity and so forth. That's a criticism of Calvin that's made by a Reformed theologian named Reed. But what Barth does is really take up this uh, idea from Luther that God is determined by his action in Christ all the way up and all the way down, which finally requires the tripling, the, the Trinitarian perception of who and what God is. Ah, is that what we mean by triple predestination, that it's a Trinitarian illusion? I think so, but I'll let you yes. talk about that in a <laughs> Yes, minute. that's exactly what I intended. Okay, I'll, I'm going to turn this over to you, and I just want to finish up on Bart, and then it's your turn to spell out the triple predestination. What Bart did was say something like this. I'm just popularizing and paraphrasing for the sake of brevity and time. Predestination is not about God's externally deciding the fate of this individual or that individual. Predestination is God's divine self-determination to be the God of grace and the God of humanity, the Savior of humanity. From all eternity, the triune God decides that in Jesus Christ, God will take upon his divine self the sin of the world and uh, deal with it. So Jesus Christ becomes the universally rejected one. In him, all God's just indignation at the sin of the world is concentrated. Jesus is the rejected one on behalf of all. But just because in Jesus, God does this out of boundless love in order to rescue human beings who have fallen, fallen into real, not fictitious sin. And because this love purposing a genuine reconciliation of holy God and sinful humanity takes place in Jesus's rejection, then Jesus is also the election of God, so that all who identified with the crucified and risen Christ are therewith included, both in the rejection, which the wrath of God works upon the sin of the world, but supremely in the election by which God reaches out in a surpassing way to grasp hold of forever all those who otherwise would have been rejected. Jesus Christ is God's divine self-determination to be the Savior of humanity uh, uh, universally. Good job, Bart. <laughs> yeah, I think it. I think it's a marvelous piece of work, and it solves all sorts of terrible traditional dilemmas in Protestant theology. Right. I like the way he he completely recasts the question as God's predestination of God's self and God's election of God's self. God's election to be this kind of God in Jesus Christ, who sends the Holy Spirit. That 
first of all, reorients the question away, I think, from the, the selfish tendency to look at predestination anxiously as like, am I in or am I out? To being something that's, first of all, a confession of who God is and what kind of God God is. That's right. My One of my great teachers, Dr. Christopher Morse of Union Seminary in New York, always used to, he was very close to Karl Barth's theology, and he kind of summarized it this way. To believe in God, this God, the God described by Karl Barth in this way, is to believe God is to disbelieve the idols. And so there's a real practical down-to-earth application of this teaching. Namely, if I believe that in Jesus Christ, God himself has borne the rejection of human sins so that in Jesus Christ, God could actually reconcile God's holy self with all of us not-so-holy people, then I have no right to believe any idol which otherwise divides humanity from God or from each other. Very powerful and practical teaching, rich with ethical implications. I was going to ask you now to spell out this triple predestination (laughs) idea. Well, I I just wanted really to do a play on double predestination, because double predestination's question is, am I in the in camp or the out camp? Am I in the heaven camp or the hell camp? That's the double part, you know, are you you're one or the other? And so by calling it triple predestination, uh, besides just being funny, the idea was to reorient the question from myself and my fate to God's self and God's faithfulness, as you pointed out. So the triple part is the sense that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are electing to be the God whose intention is to save. And I think that's really the most important reorientation that has to come with a lot of heaven-hell talk. I mean, obviously, we all would prefer to end up in the good place and in the bad place. But as um, you know, as you said right at the beginning, one of the fundamental problems with all kinds of religion is that it is so egotistical in a sense. It's it's hedonistic. It's wanting to you know be happy rather than sad, which in itself is not perverse. But when it comes to matters of God, easily instrumentalizes God. God is not the end. God is not the the uh, summum bonum, the ultimate good. But God is the instrument to my getting what I want, um, which is in a strange way mirrors the problem. With with double predestination, which instrumentalizes the son to get what the father wants. And we need to get away from that to a much more, I I would maybe call it a a holistic person-to-person understanding of what salvation is. I mean, the point of salvation is not to live in a beautiful city with streets of gold, though, you know, if that's the way it is, no objections on my part. The point is to be in this relationship of true love, true knowing, between us and God and between us and each other, which is something that can only in the end happen through through um, the community that God forms. Um, and so, you know, the question still remains though on some level and uh, two questions actually remain. And though I am never a fan of saying, oh, it's a mystery, because I think most of the time that's a cop-out. I think this might be maybe the only places where it's legitimate to go there. The two mysteries that remain are why would anyone not be moved if they heard it? Um, Now, of course, there are lots of people who tragically and uh, culpably on the part of Christians have heard the Christian message in an offensive way or an inadequate way or 
coupled with repulsive behavior or all sorts of other things. Um, or, you know, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt, are already engaged in religious traditions and practices that are beautiful and speak deeply to them, and there isn't anything that attracts them. But I think of, from a, a perspective of Christian faith, there we should be a little bit troubled. Why, why can some people hear this message and not be moved by it, even beyond the culpability of Christians in communicating it. Um, but I think then we still have to hold out for one more mystery. And as you alluded to, Luther talks about this as the distinction between the light of grace and the light of glory. It does seem to be necessary to hold out the possibility that even on the other side, the God who intends all faithfulness will finally find that there are some who are not in his presence for whatever reason. My my own kind of instinct, I want to say it's only because in the end we prefer our sins to God's company. But I realize that puts me right back in the problem of uh, all of us, which is to be human is to prefer your sins to God's company. So how could it be that anyone would hold out to the bitter end, the truly bitter end of company with Satan in hell forever um, rather than God's company? And to me, that remains finally inexplicable. And that's even if it's putting all the weight on our side. If it's on God's side, then I think Luther is absolutely right. There's nothing in the light of grace, uh, which is how he refers to the gospel that's been added to the light of nature, that can tell us how that will be. And I think he is really right to say, this is just not accessible to us. We just can't go there. And I, I think maybe even more importantly, if we had that knowledge now, it could not but be destructive. Uh, when I teach on this topic to students, I say, what would it mean? Think, think through the consequences for your life. If you knew without any question of a doubt, no matter what you did, you would be saved, you'd be in heaven, everything would be fine. Could that be good knowledge for you to have? And of course, it seems at first like it should be the assurance of faith at all. But in fact, what it does is externalizes your relationship with God to simply a fact about your fate. It, it can actually draw you away from the actual reality of living with God. On the flip side, I said, what if you knew for absolute certain that you were damned and that nothing you could do would change it? Of course, you know, it, that one's even easier to see how destructive it is. So I think there, Luther is really onto something here that in most cases, theology should seek and try to penetrate the mysteries and explicate them and make them as clear as possible for faith. But I think here we are at though maybe, as I said, one of the only places where it is better to finally, in fact, slam on the brakes before going over the cliff and saying, nope, only this far and no farther, because on the other side is, you know, the, the, co the coyote falling over the cliff in a Roadrunner cartoon and getting smashed down at the bottom. There's just <laughs> nothing good, nothing good can come of going over that cliff. I, I think that's a wonderful summary, Sarah. It's sort of like saying the gospel raises the question of theodicy. Indeed, the gospel insists on the question of theodicy. Where is the righteousness of God on the earth? And having raised this question, it answers, only God can deliver the answer, and you've just got to wait and see. Right. And that's so much what we've been talking about in like in our, our past couple of episodes on the Gospel of Mark. It really does insist on an apocalyptic perspective that we are in the middle. We are in the midst of battle. We are not at the end of it. And it is not given to us to see the outcome yet. And so many of Jesus' parables, actually, to get back to Jesus, <laughs> so many of Jesus' parables are really waiting parables, that there is some kind of gap between the promised arrival and the actual arrival. 
and all of the commendations and blessings are on those who wait despite the long time duration, who wait despite the delay. That's, that's exactly where we are. That's, uh, I, I've said for years that patience is the eschatological virtue. Oh, and the most annoying one, too. Gosh. <laughs> yep, that's, that's so true. <laughs> well, I would say the practical outcome then uh, for listeners who want to know, well, what do I do with all this information that's just been unloaded onto me? I think where I come out on this is that it is not given to us to teach as a certainty that all will be saved but it is allowed to us to hope in the gospel that all will be saved. And I would even go so far as to say we are commanded to pray for the salvation of many, indeed of all. But that is the difference between prayer and proclamation. It is something we are asking for, but it's not something that we know or can assert yet. I think that's right. I think it would be dangerous to dogmatize one way or the other. Uh, we have no right uh, to sentence anyone to hell, and we have no uh, right uh, to comfort ourselves by saying no matter what, one and all, we will be saved. Those are judgments that are beyond our competence. Now, what we can say, which I think following Luther's later revisions of his treatise on bound will and Barth's development of them, I think what we can say is that God is to be identified as the Father who is determined to redeem and fulfill his creation through the missions of Christ and his Son. That is how we identify G-O-D, the Father who is self-determined, freely, joyfully, eternally self-determined to redeem and fulfill the creation through his Son and his Spirit. And that happens to us, that purpose of God grasps us when by the power of the Spirit, we are united with the Son so that our lives become a return of praise and thanksgiving to God the Father. And I would add, too, that this also, again, because of the eschatological and apocalyptic orientation, it reorients predestination or election from being something decreed before the beginning of time to actually being the story of the creation of the world, of the human race, that it actually election is happening in real time. It's happening now as God the Father continues to send the good news about his crucified and risen son through the Holy Spirit's work through the church through the word, through the sacraments and so forth in order to elect people and call them to him right now. And I think that really is important for getting away from this kind of desperate sense of being a, a puppet or totally um, unfree in, in the wrong sense, you know, in the, in the purely mechanical or arbitrary object sense, but that this is something that you are involved in, listener, right now in God's choosing you to come to him for salvation. Luther said that so beautifully in his explanation of the third article of the creed. I believe that by my own reason or strength, I cannot believe in my Lord Jesus Christ or come to him. But the Holy Spirit has called me, called me through the preaching of the gospel, etc. Right? So the, the Spirit is the agent of election. The Spirit is the one who issues the call. And he does that right down here in space and time 
through the ordinary proclamation of the gospel. And so often the Holy Spirit is the forgotten third wheel of the Trinity. And what I love about Luther's doctrine of election here is precisely that you have to have a Holy Spirit or none of this works, none of this happens. So true. And that takes, of course, like you said, that takes predestination out of a kind of a a false, exclusive, protological location in God the Father's absolute decree, which is then carried out instrumentally by the Son and the Spirit. And it actually puts here on the earth in history the mystery of election into the Spirit's calling through the gospel. I think a, a very careful reading of Romans 10 would show you that Paul is wrestling with why the Spirit has turned from the Jewish people to, to the mission to the Gentiles. And that would, the election is something that's happening historically in history. And the Spirit is leading the mission in this direction rather than that. Paul doesn't leave it there because he concludes the great meditation on election in Romans 9 to 11 in chapter 11 with what he refers to as a revelation. Now, this is, I think, really interesting and perhaps a really good way to finish our discussion today, because so often Paul's exclamation at the end of Romans 11, um, oh, the wonder, oh, the mystery, who can figure out God? It's beyond all comprehension. And that's that kind of mystery mongering that you were criticizing earlier for just dodging all the serious questions. So often Paul is read that way. But I don't think that's a very good exegesis of that passage. Paul has built up the argument through Romans 9, God is God, not a creature like us. God's decisions are qualitatively other than our own. Romans uh, 10, God has turned the mission of the gospel from the Jews uh, for because he's temporarily hardened their hearts in order that the gospel would go to the Gentiles. Election is something the Spirit is doing historically in order to direct the gospel mission to the nations. And then he returns in Romans 11 to the ultimate purpose of all this. And has God abandoned his people? Does that, is that what election means, that Israel is damned forever? Can God's calling be revoked? May it never be, he says. Mm-hmm. And so as he ponders this tension, this conflict, Paul comes to what he says is a revelation. And that revelation, God has consigned all to sin in order that he might have mercy on all. Oh, the depths of the wisdom of God. Who has searched his ways? Paul exclaims in doxological wonder. It's wonderful. And that, that emphasis then, that he may have mercy on all. That's the hope that we pray for. Indeed, Lord, have mercy on all and send your spirit to crack open every single heart, no matter how hardened. Or to put it in, in Luther's terms from the end of Bondage of the Will, if God has saved a scoundrel like me, how can I deny salvation to anyone else? <laughs> I think that's exactly the place to end. That's great. All right. Well, may God have mercy on all of us scoundrels. And uh, next time, our topic will be the Church Father, Athanasius. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickewilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. 
Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.